reading this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, through chapter 4, verse 1. Hebrews 3, 12, through 4, 1. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Michael. Good morning, church family. We are going to hang out in Hebrews chapter 3 today. We're in part 2 of a series we're calling One Another, where we are talking about important principles of how we're supposed to interact with each other. If you're here in our Bible class on Sunday mornings, our elders are also looking at a few other of the principles of one another. There are actually 59 different times in the New Testament that We are commanded to do something or interact in some way with one another in a way that will produce a divine type of fellowship. This is is not necessarily an attempt to just improve community life here. It's not our goal just to um, help us all just get along a little bit better. We actually believe that these one another's carry with them a weight of eternal ramification, you might say. The way we treat each other, the way we relate to each other, actually has the power to shape where we spend eternity. And we're going to see that in full force in the text here in Hebrews chapter 3. You know, one of the great lies that sort of is told in modern culture today is that you can, and maybe you even should, practice your faith as privately as possible. That you actually have the ability to just exist in faith, to live in faith, to journey your way to heaven, and do that in an isolated setting. That if you could just practice it your own and keep it yourself privately, that you will be just fine. In fact, Satan works so masterfully through people's fear and through people's pride to get us to do this. Our pride tells us things like, I can do it on my own, I don't need people. Pride kind of feeds us that thought in our head. And our fear tells us, these people aren't really trustworthy, and these people aren't really those that can help me. Um, We focus on the failings of Christians, and oftentimes we keep our distance from them. But our principle of one another today is this, and it's going to demand that we actually share our lives together. The principle is this, that we actually be people that encourage one another, encourage one another. Now we're going to get beyond the hallmark understanding of encouragement and get down into the nitty-gritty of what the Bible means by that, but I hope that it will be helpful to you. Let's start with this. 
we got to start, first of all, when we're talking about encouragement, with the concern of why we need to be encouraged. we got to start there, first of all, with the concern. What's the problem by which we need to be encouraged? And there are three questions that this text kind of brings out with regards to why we're going to need encouragement. Question number one is this. What is the concern? Now, if you look in verse 12, and then you go down to verse 19, you'll see a theme that kind of pulls through the whole text here. And that theme is this. What the writer is concerned about is Christians going through unbelief. Unbelief is the problem. Unbelief kind of weaves itself through this entire text. There's a lot of problems. He talks about an evil heart. He talks about rebellion. He talks about disobedience. But the root underneath all of that is that we, would, might, we might actually be people of unbelief. Unbelief is the root of all the disposition of sin. You know, sin starts with an attitude, a false belief, a disposition of the heart. That's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 when he said, it's not the things outside of you that defile you. It's actually that which is inside of you that comes out that defiles you. What he's talking about is that the disposition, the attitude of your heart is the root of all of our sin. Specifically, unbelief, when we have a disbelief or an unbelief, and the character and the promises of God leads us to sin. What's interesting about this is to make sure this point is driven home, if you notice in verses, uh, down in verse about 15 through verse 19, the Hebrew writer illustrates this problem of unbelief with a really famous story in Hebrew history, the story of the Exodus. He goes back and he anchors into the story of the Exodus where there were a group of people who came out miraculously from slavery, passed through waters, and then received God's laws so that they could become God's people, and then followed in a journey throughout the wilderness of their life for 40 years following Moses, and they died following Moses. And yet, and yet that group of people, he said, could not enter the rest because they had unbelief. Now, if we illustrated that today, it might look like this. You might have a person who, at about the age of maybe 20 or 25, is brought out of the slavery of sin and passes through the waters of baptism to become one with God, receives his law so that they could become God's people, but journeys for 40 years grumbling and complaining and doubting and not really fully grabbing onto the character and the promises of God. And in that unbelief, dies, he would say here, missing the rest. You see, unbelief is the root of all of our sins. Unbelief in who God is. For fact, let me explain this. Um, Think about the, the sin of envy. The sin of envy. Envy is really you not believing that God is giving you what is right and good in your life. And so you look at other people and what they have and you envy that. How about the sin of deceit, a heart that's deceitful? That, the root of that is the false belief that you are either not accepted, so you have to lie about who you are to be accepted, or you have to deceive people so that they might be impressed by you. How about the sin of fear or anxiety? That is, a false, that is an unbelief that God is not in control, or that God might be in control, but he's not a good God that is trustworthy, and so we have fear and anxiety. How about the sin of bitterness? Where's the root of that? 
That is an unbelief that either you are not forgiven, maybe you don't believe that you're forgiven and so you experience bitterness, or a false belief that God is not a just God and you can't trust him to handle things in a right way. How about the sin of impatience, not being patient? That's the unbelief that you don't trust in God's timing, and so it bears itself out in being impatient. How about unquenchable guilt? Yes, that's also a sin, that you can't let go of guilt even if you become a Christian. That's an unbelief in the work at Calvary that it actually worked for you. How about the sin of arrogance? That's the unbelief that Jesus Christ didn't have to die for your sin, but other people's sin. Arrogance and grace cannot coexist. Do you see what I'm saying? That unbelief in both the character, the promises, the truth, the word of God is the root of all of our sins. And so the fear of the writer here is that we would be people of unbelief. So question one is, what is he concerned with? Unbelief. Question two is, who is he concerned for? Now you notice he says in verse 12, take care, brothers. And then he would say, all of you or any of you, take care, any of you so that you may not be hardened by unbelief. This concern is for believers. The idea of fighting unbelief is not just for non-Christians or unbelievers. The idea of fighting unbelief is for Christians, and it's not just for weak Christians. In fact, he says, any of you. I believe this is what Paul was getting around to when he said that we need to fight the good fight of faith, meaning we need to fight to have faith. We've got to fight against unbelief. And this is something that is true for all of us. And the goal is found in verse 14 when he says that we will be people that to the, our dying day hold on to our original confidence in Jesus Christ. That we don't lose that through unbelief. So what is he concerned with unbelief? Who is he concerned for? The brothers. When is he concerned about it? Is he concerned just before you become a Christian or the early stages of your Christianity? That's not at all what he says. In fact, every uh, tense of all the verbs that are in this text here are current, present tense, meaning he is concerned right now for the new Christians, for the old Christians, for the immature Christians, for the mature Christians. In fact, he says in verse 14, while it is called today, we need to be concerned about this. Meaning every time that there is a today, the concern for Christians to fall into unbelief exists. And so that is a serious problem. And I think what he's getting at is this idea that every one of us, every single one of us, has some version of a false belief or an unbelief that we have to be fighting against. There's somebody, something, oftentimes Satan whispering to us a false or an unbelief that we have to fight against. Something about God that we've got to reject. Something that we might be falsely believing about others that we've got to reject. And something maybe that we need to, that is false about ourselves that we need to reject. And Satan is constantly trying to attack us and deceive us. And so the question is this. If unbelief is rampant and dangerous, and we've got to be incredibly careful and cautious about that, what's the answer? Well, this is where we get to how we interact with one another. He says we've got to follow the command in verse 13. There's one really simple command that he gives us in verse 13. He says we are to exhort or encourage one another. Exhort or encourage one another. 
This word, exhort or encourage, it, it translates both ways um, depending on what you're trying to get from it. And actually the word, when you go back and look in the original, the word is used as the name of the Holy Spirit oftentimes when Jesus is describing him in the upper room, when he says the comforter is going to come. The word is paraclete, which means to come close and comfort. It's a word that means that we bring comfort to people. But how do we do that? How? Well, the answer is found in the actual word. The first part of the word is para. That means that we come close to people. So the first thing we do if we're going to be people that encourage one another is we've got to actually come close to each other. We've got to develop intimacy through involvement and investment into people's lives. Coming close and being able to encourage someone actually doesn't really happen from afar. That it, you, It's really difficult for us to encourage people if we don't know people. We might be able to say kind words. We might be able to say certain things that maybe lift somebody's spirits for a moment. But to do real encouragement that's going to help people fight unbelief, we actually have to do that from very close proximity. So the first thing we've got to do is come close. The second thing we have to do, this word means to come close and to call attention to evidence. That's what it means to be a paraclete. In fact, this would be the word that they would use to describe a lawyer or an advocate, somebody that would go to court with you. You would call your paraclete to come to a legal hearing with you. And what it means is you're somebody who knows you well, who comes close and recalls evidence to you. Well, what is the evidence that we're supposed to call when we encourage each other? The first thing we call is evidence of somebody's false belief. So we've got to know people well enough in our relationships and our intimacy to be able to bring to their attention maybe a false belief or an unbelief that they're living in. We've got to know them well enough. It's oftentimes found in our pain points when we're having difficulty. And the second thing we do when we come close and call attention to evidence of people that they might have a false belief or an unbelief is we give them, secondly, the facts that they should believe. Here's what is true about God. Hey, I see this in your life. You're believing this, but here's actually what's true about God. If you believe this, it might change your mind. Or here's what's true about other people. Here's what's true about yourself. And if you believe this, it's going to change something for you. I'll never forget one of the first times that a friend helped me with this opportunity because this is actually the real hard work of fellowship. This isn't hallmark-based encouragement where we just try to you know, pat each other on their back and say nice words. This is difficult, hard, nitty-gritty fellowship that builds us up to fight unbelief. It took me nearly 30 years to begin to experience this in some of my relationships. I won't forget one of the first times that a friend helped me fight this. Uh, I was spending a little time sharing some of my challenges, some of my difficulties, some of my frustrations, and this faithful friend was listening for a while, um, listening and carefully paying attention. And finally, after listening, the friend had the courage to confront one of my false beliefs. And he said to me, he said, you know, I think you're more afraid of being liked than telling people the truth. A friend told me that. He said, I think you're actually right now way more afraid of people liking you than just sharing with them what is true. Then he said, when you trust that you're accepted in Jesus Christ, when you trust that acceptance, it will be what you need 
to be able to tell people the truth. In fact, he said, if you need people to like you all the time, you'll never be able to tell them the truth. And I, first of all, was kind of, okay, a little shocked. Stepped back and my friend told me, hey, I think you're more concerned with being liked than telling people the truth. And at first I thought, well, I think your sweater's ugly. I just told you the truth. You know? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I didn't say that. But, I, you know, cheeks were a little numb. Lips got a little tingly. Wow, I was just kind of confronted. And he sat there and explained that to me. And he told me that and I appreciated it. And I had some shock, some reflection, some prayer. Realized he was right. And I recognized after some time that it was actually probably harder for him to say that than it was for me to receive it. Would you agree with that? Have you guys been in that moment where you want to tell somebody the truth, but you kind of hesitate? Because it's hard not just to receive truth, but to tell truth. That's why we have to be paracletes. That's why we have to come close to people in our lives, to spend time and investment to spend time in involvement in people's lives, to get to know them, to actually care about them. And when we earn that trust and someone is pouring their heart out to you and you're listening to their pain points and what's causing them frustration, you'll have not only the respect of that person, but the investment to be able to say back to them, hey, here's what I'm hearing in your life right now. And I actually think you might be believing this that's not true. Let me call the attention to what you might be believing that's not true and share with you what is true. That's what it means to encourage people. That's the hard work of exhortation. And this work brings great dividends if we'll do it. Every one of you in here needs somebody in your life who is willing to tell you the truth in an incredibly careful and loving way, but still tell you the truth. Evaluate your life for a moment. Do you have anybody giving you feedback? Because here's the reality. If you don't have anybody giving you feedback, that must mean we're not open to feedback. And we've got to bring people into our life, let people into our life, who give us feedback. Feedback should be coming from Scripture. It should be coming from prayer. But it also should be coming from some brother or sister in Jesus Christ. And we've got to be open to that. So we need to be people receiving this encouragement and we need to be people giving this encouragement. But for what end? What's the goal? Just so we can tell people the truth? No. Look down in verse 1 of chapter 4. Here's the goal. He says, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You see, what's going to actually motivate us to build these kind of relationships that go beyond the surface, um, you know, trivial words of hallmark encouragement that get down into our lives to fight unbelief? Two things will help us motivate us to get into these kind of relationships. Number one, you've got to have a true and honest fear of unbelief. We've got to actually recognize that unbelief is not just a problem of non-Christians. It's not just a struggle for those that are skeptical doubters that are outside of the faith. This text is written to current Christians, and the writer is trying to wake you up with a fear that you might actually have unbelief. And that's why he uses the story of the Exodus, because if you were looking at 
the people of the Exodus and didn't know their heart, which the Bible reveals in their heart they wanted to go back to Egypt, if you didn't know that, you would see decent people following Moses their entire life. And what he's saying is people can look like they're following Moses their entire life and live in unbelief. They can do that. You can do that. You've got to have a serious wake-up to the danger and consequences of unbelief and realize that it could actually be something that you have in your life. Number two, a fear of unbelief will motivate you to have this kind of relationship. But number two, you've got to long for a true and a better rest. This phrase when he says that there's a rest that still is available to us is borrowed from the Old Testament. And that word rest was used when they were describing how the nation of Israel was going to enter the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan. They were going to finally have rest, is what the Old Testament was speaking about. And what it talked about was finally having a place where they could dwell permanently and relate to God and be in relationship with God. And what the Hebrew writer is saying is that rest that was offered, you'll see later in chapter 4 of Hebrews, that was brought to them through Joshua, there actually is a better rest, a true rest, that goes beyond just a physical land that Joshua was able to offer the nation of Israel. There's a true and a better rest, and that rest is found in Jesus Christ. You see, here's kind of the problem of unbelief. Unbelief is not you stopping believing. Unbelief is not you ceasing to believe. Unbelief is you transferring your belief to somebody or something else other than God. That's what it is. We are by nature faith-based creatures. We trust, whether we like to say we do or we don't, we trust things. That's the reason we go to work, because you trust that if you put your hours in, your employer is going to send you a check. That's faith. You have faith. We trust in a lot of things, whether we like to say it or not, we're faith-based creatures. And when we experience unbelief, it does, it's not that we go into a state where we don't trust or believe anything. What we do is we take our trust in God's character and God's promises and transfer that trust to people, to things, and oftentimes ourself. How do you know you're doing that? Well, you know you trust yourself and not God when you worry all the time. You know what worry is? You wanting to be God and realizing that you don't have the power to do it. <laughs> That's all worry is. You know, you trust other people when you lust for things. That's what lust really is. This over-desire and this belief that somebody else has the answer to bring my soul and my heart rest. And they don't. You know, when you, you, here's how you'll know when you trust things. When you covet. When you believe that the moment I have that thing, that job, that house, that status, when I have that thing, I'll be okay. That's coveting. And all you're doing in these moments, whether you're when you're worrying or lusting or coveting or anything else, is you're saying, I now trust self, others, or things. I believe in them to give me rest, and I don't believe in God. You see, what God knows about our unbelief is that it is incredibly exhausting. Worry wears you out, doesn't it? Constantly lusting wears you out. Coveting over and over makes you tired. And what Jesus has is a better offer for you. Remember he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, how? Well, you notice the Hebrew writer says something really careful. 
In verse 1, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest remains. How does he do this? He doesn't give us a rest. It's not a new mattress. It's not a vacation. He gives us his rest. You see, there was one night that Jesus actually gave up his rest. You remember that night? He decided he would stay up all night and pray. He asked some of his disciples to hang by and pray. They fell asleep. They got their rest. But he stayed up all night, suffering and turmoil, praying. He was arrested in the middle of the night and put through a series of mock trials. He didn't get any sleep. He was awake and not resting. He was sinless, but he let them find him guilty. He was all-powerful, but yet he submitted to their sentence of death. Why did he do that? Because he was accepting our guilt and taking our death. Jesus gave up our rest. He entered into exhaustion so we could enter into his rest. And to do so, you have to believe in this. You've got to confess that your way isn't working. Your unbelief and your belief in other things isn't working. You've got to turn your life towards him and run to him for rest. And you've got to unite your life into his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection in the waters of baptism. When you do that, you accept his grace and you rest in his love. And so here's what I want you to think about today as we finish. Number one, how to obey. Identify what could be a potential current unbelief that you need to fight. If you aren't aware of any, you might be being defeated by an unbelief right now that's taking away your, uh, your rest in God. Figure out what that is. Number two, invest in a relationship with a goal of being and receiving real encouragement. Find one. I challenged you with this last week, that you would find one new person, one new family that you could invest into to get to know. I'm challenging you again this week to take serious, not just the words I'm saying and receiving them, but actually obeying what we're talking about. Prayerfully ask God to bring somebody into your life. Maybe you have somebody, but that relationship isn't there yet. Grow that relationship. Make the investment so that real, loving, truth-telling relationship can happen. And you can encourage each other to fight unbelief and enter the rest of Jesus. If you don't have the rest of Jesus, we're always available right now. I encourage you to fight for it every day, but most certainly if you need it now, let's stand and sing.